So if you're new with us, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Timothy, and we are in chapter 2 today. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, for you to, to read as well. This morning we're going to be talking about disruptions in the church. Disruptions in the church. Now, um, Paul is going to be talking about disruptions. We want to define what this is. Uh, a disruption is a disturbance or a problem which interrupts an event or process. So you're trying to do something. You're trying to have some kind of an event or go through some kind of process. And the disruption is the thing that interrupts the process or the event. This happens all the time on Sunday mornings, like when your live stream doesn't work. Right? That's one uh, example. Um, also, sometimes you will come here to hear me just eloquently, beautifully unpack God's Word. Okay? And, and what will happen inevitably, especially on Family Sunday, you're going to hear a Wah! One of the husbands just having a hard time, right? <laughs> Focusing, and you can nudge them and grow up, right? So, but we, um, Annette, I'll have something in my nose or my teeth. Actually, Jill, after the service, was like, honey, your belt was hanging down. That's a distraction. It's a disturbance. So I'm glad I, I have a help meet in my life now. Um, we have, we, twice in our services, this is hard to believe, but twice in the middle of our services, there have been people who have been declared dead. They fainted, fell over, and died, and both of them came back to life. If that wasn't incredible enough, one of those, and I'm not lying, was on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We had someone die in the service and come back to life, which is amazing, but also the poor pastor was up here trying to preach, and that's a distraction, right? I'm trying to preach to you all, and you're back there dying. Look at me, right? People, some people will go to no length, right? It is un- unbelievable. Um, and, and what we're going to see this morning is in 1 Timothy, we've got to remember our context. So if you remember, we said, why did Paul write to Timothy? Well, he tells us the end of chapter 3. This is actually where we started our series. He says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He said, my purpose for writing you is so that you can tell this church in Ephesus how they ought to live as God's people. And we said this idea of a household is not just a physical building, and it's not just a, a Sunday morning service. This is how we are to live as God's family. And so in light of that, he says, what, what will this look like? How ought we live? And what he wants to do here is he's going to point out, that is my phone. I was like, who is playing music during the service? And it was me. <laughs> Awkward. Distraction. Disruptions. Say so it was an object lesson. Thanks, Jim. Um, so we, Paul points out to Timothy some of the disruptions that are causing problems, which interrupt the process of the church becoming who God has intended them to be. And last week we saw, he said, I want you to pray for all people. Why? He said, I want you to be the kind of people that pray for all people, especially those you don't want to pray for, right? Because we're not a people that should have division in the church. We should be a place of peace. And why is that? Because that's who our God is, right? Our God is not a God of division. Our God is a God of peace. He said, the reason we pray for all people is because God loves all people and desires all people to be saved through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So next, logically, what Paul wants to say here are, here are some of the current divisions or problems or disruptions that needed to be dealt with in the Ephesian church at that time that were keeping them from being that people of prayer, that people that were making disciples of all nations. And what my prayer is for us this morning is that just like the church in Ephesus, we may have ears uh, to hear because we have disruptions in 2021 too, amen? 
And so we want to hear these words. And, you know, last week I opened up by calling out both Republicans and Democrats. That was fun. And, and then this week we're going to get into a text that talks about uh, women remaining uh, quiet and, and, and that they are saved through childbearing. So the fun just never stops here in the text. Um, and I'm excited to see my inbo- inbox tomorrow morning. Uh, I was thinking about just taking the day off and kind of getting out of here. Uh, go join Josiah wherever he is in the cabins. Um, seriously, though, we are, we are treading on some heavy, controversial, uh, sensitive topics. Topics this morning, and so I want us to start this morning with prayer. If you'd bow your heads with me, uh, Father God, you are good. You are right in all your ways. If, if our way looks different than your way, we're, we're the ones that need to change, God. I ask that as, as you have told us everything that we need to know you and your word, that you would clarify that word to us through me this morning, that you would unify us in the places where, we're, where we disagree that you would show us how to live even in the midst of those disagreements as a people, as we saw in last week's text, that are peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. Would you guard our hearts against wrong thinking, wrong emotion that does not line up with, with your word? Would you open our ears and lead us into those arms that we sang about earlier? By your grace and for your glory, let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three disruptions, three disruptions that that can get in the way of the church being who they are called, we are called to be. The first one, if you're following along in your notes, disruption by eruption, disruption by eruption. We're going to be looking at the back half of Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through verse 15. So picking it up in verse 8, I desire then, after he said I desire all to be saved, I desire then that every man, that, that in every place, the men should Pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, what's often important when you're looking at a text is not just what it says, but what it doesn't say. Because a lot of times we read this and we automatically assume, make some assumptions. What it's not saying here is that only men should pray. Women don't pray. Right? There's plenty of passages in Scripture where we see women praying. It's also not saying men pray without anger and quarreling. Girls, you can pray angry. It's fine right? That's, that's not the point of the text either. What it's saying here, apparently in Ephesus, there was an issue specifically with the men and, and, and fighting and quarreling. And so he says to these men, when you pray, do it this way. Now the point of this, when he says lifting holy hands, we, we get caught, caught up on the, oh, so he's saying every time we pray, we have to put our hands up. Paul, we all, he is not primarily concerned with physical posture, um, that we know, uh, I love, one of my favorite things in the church service, and, and I was picking on him in the first service too, but Blair's here now. I love when we're singing, and Blair gets those antenna up, right? Tallest guy in the room, and he puts those hands up even higher. Praising his God, I love seeing that. Tim Hawkins joked about the, our physical posture as a church, and we're worshiping and praising, and those of us are a little less comfortable, right? We might have the TX, T-Rex arms, not very high, or we're carrying a TV, right? Lord, thank you. If it's a big screen TV, maybe some of us are getting a little bit more bold, right? We have the goalposts. Sometimes we'll, we'll do the goalposts and the heartburn, right? Yes, Lord, I feel it. I feel it right here. Sometimes we want to do the YMCA, or at least the first part of it, and then like Blair, we can do the Rocky, right? We are, we're champions. Uh, but we're not talking primarily about physical posture here, but about f- spiritual posture. He says here, holy hands. That's the word we want to key in on. And what does the word holy mean? It means set apart. It means free from any kind of wickedness, not defiled, clean, right? And this isn't, again, a physical clean. He's not saying hand sanitize before you put your hands up, which is good because it's hard to find that these days, amen? He's talking about sin. He says when God is concerned about their outward action here, not their inward attitude, not just their hands, but their hearts, that you would be the kind of men who would pray without anger and without fighting 
So Paul says, when you pray, you lift up, essentially think of it this way, don't lift up fists. Lift up holy hands. An open hand says, I'm surrendered to you, Lord. I'm open. I'm, I'm letting go of what I need to let go of and receiving from you. A closed fist says, no, my way. I'm holding on to things, right? I'm not willing to listen. I'm ready to fight. They're two different kind of postures of our heart. And Paul just said to be people who pray for everyone, to be peaceful. Anger and fighting are the opposite of praying. And we already said the enemy is not flesh and blood anyway. We should not have that kind of skirmish in the church. And so sometimes the disruption is external, like the baby crying. But sometimes it's internal and it's in our hearts. And one of the reasons that we often can't come to God honestly, can't come to him openly, is because we're holding on to some form of anger or bitterness or, or resentment and when we, there's a barrier between us and somebody else in our lives, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, there's also going to be a barrier between you and the Lord because it's an issue of your heart. So the question this morning for you and for me is what, what, are, what are we, what, what anger and fighting are we, are, 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 who are we angry or fighting with today? And we come to God and ask him to, to change our fists to open hands. What are you holding against somebody that you need to let go? What argument needs to find peaceful resolution? And notice here he says every place. This isn't, again, this is not just a church. Don't be mad at people at church. This is everywhere you go. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, he says. And as far as it's in your control, do what you need to do to make things right. Because when we're angry or fighting, Paul is saying it's disrupting us. It's interrupting us from being the kind of people that God has called us to be. So that's the first disruption. The second disruption that we see is dress. Disruption by eruption and then disruption by dress. Now, verse 9 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls. Some of the girls are like, uh-oh, this is awkward. Uh, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, before we ask, we dismiss all the people with braided hair, we're not going to do that. Again, what Paul is not saying, he's not saying, well, men don't need to worry about their outward appearance, right? Men don't need to worry about their good works. No. Apparently, again, there was something in this context that needed to be specifically addressed with the women in the church at Ephesus. Just like with the men and their issue of prayer, the outward is a reflection of the inward. That actually both attitudes, the men and the women here, the attitude essentially was saying, it's all about me. That, that was the spirit that they were bringing to the table, the word here he says is, he says, dress with modesty. Now this word modesty, we often think about just in terms of like, well, that's cut too low or too high. We think of the kind of things in those terms. But really this is a larger context. The word modesty means reverence toward God. It's like we heard the word godliness, right? And a regard toward others. I'm thinking about my God and I'm, and I'm thinking about the people around me. This word can also be translated sensible. Really say, know your context, right? Be aware. So how we dress in Alaska is a lot different than Texas and Saudi Arabia, right? That we, that we know, I, I, always, I, love, I always know when I'm getting closer to home and I'm flying, I'm in the airport, I'm in Seattle and I'm looking for our gate. I just look for the extra toughs, right? And the Carhartt and the Alaskan grown sweatshirts, I'm, I'm coming home, baby. I'm almost there, right? We know when Jill moved to California, from, from, from California to Alaska, she changed out all of her shorts into snow pants, right? She, she's in a different place that we need to know our context. Am I at work? I'm going to dress differently than when I'm at home on Saturday morning with my family. Am I at church? Where, where am I? And what's important here is this, this list that he gives about braided hair and, and pearls and gold and costly attire. This is not a checklist. 
This is not a legalistic, we don't have a, a modesty bouncer out front. Mary Jean's not watching you guys as you're coming in and going, braided hair, out of here, costly attire, let me see that tag. Hmm, Nordstrom's, we're getting a little close there, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, these are particular examples of a universal principle. Particular examples in their context to a universal principle. That universal principle is that God wants women to think for themselves on how they are to adorn themselves in a way that is consistent with the gospel that they're proclaiming. Does my outward match what is inward, what I believe? And so he says here, to dress with modesty and self-control. Now this word self-control can be translated from the Greek as a soundness of mind, a sober thinking, that we're thinking clearly about what we're doing, and a self-mastery, not at the mercy of foolish appetites and passions. What Paul is saying here is we need to be asking ourselves not just what do I want to wear, what feels good, what looks good to me, but what does my God think about how I'm presenting? Does this represent him? Does this glorify him? And how will it affect those around me? He says, I don't want people to be drawn to you because of your outward wear, but with what instead? Well, in verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. There's that reverence for God again. With good works. Not what you wear, but what's in your heart and how that plays out in the way that you serve and love people all around you. So we ask ourselves, when you're, when you're looking into your wardrobe, not just what do I want to wear, but, but what's the motive of my heart here? Am I trying to draw attention to myself or toward my God? Do I just want people to look at how pretty I am, how put together I am, uh, the brand that I'm repping, how, how much money I have? Or do I want them to know Jesus? It's also helpful. This is where older, more mature believers, women can come alongside other women and, and, and teach them, pray with them, look in the word, think about these things. This context is going to matter. It's not, it's not a one standard meets all. We had a girl one time join our small group. She was a brand new baby Christian, and she was not exactly dressed for women's tea. We'll just say it that way. And so the older women, loving her exactly where she was, gently come alongside of her and, and start helping her move in the right direction. The point here is we're removing disruptions. Like men's attitude when they're praying, a woman's attitude presenting should point people toward the Lord, not themselves. And again, that's not as though the principle doesn't apply to men as well. I think there's two extremes here we need to avoid, both on the guy's side and the gal's side of, of, the, of the aisle. Um, someone recently told me there was a church who said it was sinful to, for women to wear um, pants that had stitching on it. Everybody's like, oh, not our church. Uh, because it would draw attention. The stitching would draw attention. So here's what we're not saying, that all men are just going to lust, and so therefore, family Sunday, hey everybody, uh, that all men are going to lust, and therefore women just need to wear burlap sacks and burkas, right? Because the men are just going to be men. That's not what he's saying here. But at the same time, we don't go the other way and say, men, you need to avert your eyes, and women, you just dress however you want. That's that's a them problem. See how both of those are, are selfish? We should be both thinking, everybody should be thinking, what can I do to help point the other to Jesus? That should be our attitude. And again, the context is doing life together. So this isn't just how you dress on Sunday morning at church. This is, we should always be mindful of the people around us. How women could dress. And funny enough, that was the easy part of the message. Um, Here we go. Hashtag sweat smile emoji. Number three, disruption by disorder. Disruption by disorder. What follows is one of the most controversial passages. I've already got a lot of texts and calls leading up to this passage this week. How are you going to handle this one, PJ? All right, that's what all my friends call me. Uh, verse 12, verse 11, it says it this way. Let a woman, Pastor Justin, for those of you that are like, I don't, your name's, okay. Um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I want to start by saying this, that merely bringing up this topic can bring with it all sorts of thoughts and emotions and feelings, maybe from places you've been, women, things that you've experienced, baggage that is attached to some of these ideas. And what we want to see here this morning is that, especially around this idea of submission, this has been a topic that's grossly mishandled and that often, listen, is out of line with God's word and God's character. And what we want to look at this morning, we've seen the way that these ideas have led to abusive, heavy-handed male dominance over the centuries, and that is not God's heart. What we look at here in the next chapter, um, we're going to see Paul dealing with the, the character of the church's two official leader roles, elder and deacon. And remember in our context, he's talking about the disturbances in the Ephesian church from how they ought to behave. That, that all of these attitudes here were, look at how awesome I am. Look at how right I am. Look at, at me and not at, at Jesus. Whether it was with the, the praying hands, the, the outward appearance, or here with apparently women in the church coming, stepping out of line when it came to order. Now, in this last issue of disturbance, he's going to be transitioning us toward a disturbance that has to do with leadership roles. Because it's exactly where he goes in chapter 3. So we're talking about the kind of disturbances that distract from being the kind of people we are, that we ought to be as God's family in light of these leadership roles. Now, notice the main verb of the text is learn. Let a woman learn. Paul here is saying that women should be learners. And again, he's not saying men shouldn't be learners. He's he's addressing a a specific issue in in the church at that time. And I actually believe in a lot of ways this passage is affirming the value of women, especially in a world in, in that day when Paul was writing, that most women weren't even allowed to be educated in the first place, that many of them were just simply treated as objects. He's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus and all of his followers, Paul is a follower of Jesus, he's telling all of his people, men and women, come follow me. Be my disciple. And what does it mean to be a disciple? A learner. And then he told all of his disciples, go and not just be a disciple, but make a disciple. Not just come to me and learn, but go and teach. That Jesus' heart is for men and women to learn from him and then teach others about him. And so we know his heart is for men and women to be disciples. And what we're going to see here is that Paul is emphasizing the manner of their learning. Just like he was talking about the manner of of how they should pray and the manner of how they should dress, he wants to talk about the the manner in which they learn. And what does he say? Learn quietly with all submissiveness. Learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this word quiet did not mean uh, absolute physical silence, that that women are just to be mimes, right? And just kind of do the... we're, We're not just coming with physical silence. And again, we're not... This isn't limited to a church service. He said, as God's family, this is how you should learn. And of course, we know from reading our Bible, all the healthy examples of men and women talking. So it's not just saying that they cannot speak, of course. So what is he trying to get at here? He says to learn quietly with submission. This is not just a physical silence. This is a heart issue. He's saying that the women should learn with a humble, teachable spirit, willing to be led. He's not asking them to turn off the brain. He's actually asking them to turn on the brain and, and learn. Paul never says that women shouldn't teach in any, in any context. Um, there are plenty of women who teach. Jen Wilkins, one of my girls, I quote her all the time, right? Great Bible teacher. 
there's, we, we see in, in scripture, Timothy is taught by his own mother and his grandmother. Paul commends that in the next book. We see women teaching all through the Bible. In Colossians 3.16, talking to men and women, he says, teach one another. So there are, there are many senses in which we are teaching, and, I, and I've learned this, I, I learn from women all the time. My wife, my mom, and our community group, we have men and women gathering around God's word, sharing with each other, teaching each other. So what is he talking about here? What is the context? Verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, once again, we have to remember our context, how to behave in God's family. He is not saying that every woman on the earth is under the leadership of every man. There are plenty of women on planet earth that are not under any of my leadership. What he's saying is in the household of God, this role and, and I see this link. He's talking about teaching and exercising authority. And this is the idea of the type of teaching that exercises authority over the body. And we're about to see in just a couple of sentences that he's going to talk about this role of elders. And I believe that's the context that he is here saying is only for men. Now, now we're going to talk about next week the decisions on how to interpret. This has to do with um, the leadership is going to decide how to interpret God's word amongst that local group of people, how to instruct God's people uh, in, in that context through the word, and how to discipline those people in that context through the word. But I want to say here that, that we need women in our church serving, leading, and teaching as much as we need the men. That in our practice, the only exception in a role is that of, of elder. We are actively trying to do a better job at equipping men and women in our church to teach. That's why we have a foundations class starting this Wednesday about how to, how to understand the word, to learn and to be able to teach it. And we have men and women in that class. Our discipleship triangles, to make disciples who make disciples, those are for men and women. We have context with our youth and our children. We have places where we not just want, but we need the perspective and wisdom and unique God-given insight and, 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 and perspective of women and men in our church. Now, I know there are some who would disagree with this interpretation, even some in this room. And it would argue, sometimes it's argued that this is just a cultural thing. That, that Paul was just talking to the church at Ephesus about a specific issue where, where the women were out of line, that they were coming in, disrupting, trying to take over, and, and that it was just for the church at Ephesus. It's a little hard for me to get there. Um, we see Paul arguing this same thing, talking about these same exact things, to the church in Corinth. Different church, different context. And we see Peter, another apostle, speaking about roles of men and women uh, to churches that are dispersed all over the known world at that time in, in 1 Peter. And not to mention, what I, even more so, Paul makes his argument for what he's talking about here using Adam and Eve. It's hard to get more universal than the first man and the first woman. And what I see here is Paul reasoning from the order of creation. Look at verse 13. For, that's your word. Here, here's the reason. So the reason I'm saying order in, in, in authority, teaching authority in the church is this way. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And we're looking here in the context of order and, and roles. So what is, what is he saying here? I believe that God's created intent was for the husband, Adam, to lead servant, loving, humble leadership in the home. And we see this echoed in the church, that he is to lead his wife, Eve, who's her, his helper. Which, by the way, helper doesn't mean inferior, right? If I'm helping someone with their math, who, who's the one that knows more, right? Well, we're, we're talking about a, a team, a beautiful team. 
And here in the church, he's saying the same thing. Elders, who are to be men, are leading the church, full of men and women, to make a beautiful team. And what's important here to see is that when God's talking about men and women, he is not assigning different worth. Please hear me on that. That in Christ, we are one. And he says in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you were all one in Christ, Jesus. Now, he's not obliterating that role. We still have men and women in this building, right? What he's saying is that you are all one in Christ. You have the same place in Christ. You have the same privilege in Christ. We are co-heirs with him. This isn't a hierarchy. Jesus didn't die for one of us more so or love one of us more so. We are all in Christ, equal footing, amen. What we would say here is it's not different roles. It's different roles, but the same value. Different roles, same value. The Bible never says that roles and worth are one and the same. In fact, what did Jesus say? The first shall be last. The last shall be first. We see this echoed all through Scripture. Because if this is the case, then wouldn't Jesus be less God than the Father? We, we see in the Gospels Jesus submitting himself to his Father. He says that over and over, your will, not mine. That doesn't mean that Jesus is less God. The Trinity is equal parts God, but they have different roles. In the body of Christ, we see different roles. But he says that's not to say that one has more honor than the other. Different roles, not different worth. In fact, in Ephesians 5, we're called that each of us submit to one another. There's a sense in which each of us in the body give of ourselves we become servants of all, placing ourselves under, willing to wash the feet and serve and love each person around us. We said last week that we're called to submit to the authorities in our lives. Why? Not because Joe Biden has more inherent worth than I do to God. Not because your boss or your parent is more valuable or more special or necessarily even smarter or, or, or stronger than us. These are roles, and God knows, God who's a God of order knows that if there are none of these roles, it will become chaos in this world. And so out of his love, he's created order. It's not about worth, nor is it about ability. This is not to say women can't teach. We already went over that. They sure can. It's not to say that they, they couldn't perform any of the duties of an elder. And nor is it, sometimes there's this idea that like, there's a secret women's society out there is trying to overthrow all the men, right? I don't think so. And that all men are just the better leaders, the more humble leaders. We know that's not true. This is an act of faith. It's trusting who our God is and his created order and purpose. Because ultimately, all of us are submitted to our God. In verse 14, he turns from the purposed order of creation to the disorder that resulted from the fall into sin. He says, for God, Adam, formed, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, he's talking here, this is not, again, let's, let's walk on some eggshells, he's not teaching that the reason men should be the authoritative teachers in the church is because all the women, like Eve, are more easily deceived. He's not saying that women are naive and gullible. Not saying, ladies, not saying, okay. Um, that's not taught anywhere in scripture, and that has certainly not been my experience. Jill is not more deceived than I am. Like, we're watching a movie, I'm always wrong, and she's always right. I'm like, that's the bad guy, I guarantee you. She's like, no, it's not, it's that guy. And she's always so annoying. She, every single time, right? We stopped watching movies together. Um, <laughs> Paul's also not saying that Eve is to blame for the sin and not Adam. And what does Paul say in Romans 5? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right? One man and death through sin. Death ran from Adam to Moses. If anything, Adam was in a worse place. Eve was deceived, but Adam was the one that got the command directly. 
He, he was the one that knew better and willfully went against it anyway. This is not getting one of them off the hook and not the other. Paul's continuing his argument about disruptions to order. He's saying this serpent in Genesis 3 undermined God's created order. What God did, God, in Genesis 2, he created man, then he gave the man his command, and then he formed from man a woman to come alongside and partner with him. And Adam tells her all the things that God has told him. So we see the truth of God. From, it's, it's from God. The truth is given to Adam, and then it's given to Eve. And what we see Satan coming in and doing subtly is he reverses the order. And he comes not to the man, but to the woman. And he feeds her lies. Instead of God's truth, it's the lie from the devil that's given to Eve and then passed along to Adam. Here's what's going on. Both Adam and Eve sin, right? No, all have sinned and fall short. Neither of them were trusting or obeying God's created order in their role. Eve did not follow her husband's leadership under God's command, ultimately trusting God's word through Adam and was deceived by the serpent's lies. We see Adam here abandoning his position of leadership and he stood by passively, allowing it to happen, forsaking his responsibility as the leader. And this is exactly what sin does. It twists God's word. That we take God's word and his purposes, and we twist it to meet our own word and our own purposes. This is why we see throughout history this idea of leaders and followers. We see leaders who have been oppressive and abusive. We see followers who have been rebellious and disobedient. Sin comes in and it perverts everything. And so we, we've seen in the Catholic Church the leadership that has gone way left of center. We see the domestic abuse in homes. We see the perversion of these God-given roles, which is why one of the reasons we recoil at words like submission because of all the bad examples we've seen of it. So what's our hope in this world full of disruptions and disorder? We go to the last point here. God's household reordered by the gospel. God's household reordered by the gospel. And if we, we weren't through the woods yet, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and holiness, in love and holiness with self-control. One of the most controversial verses and one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Who picked 1 Timothy? Once again, what is it not saying? A lot of times a principle to understanding the Bible is to take a harder passage that's less understandable and, and, and hold it up in light of the rest of what we know the Bible to clearly say. And what we know the Bible teaches about salvation. He's not saying that in order for a woman to be saved, forgiven of her sins, and, and, and made right in God's sight, that she has to have children. That cannot be what the, it is saying. We know from cover to cover, God's heart, he says, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Full stop. Amen? That is for men and women. He's not tearing things out. Like, men, you're just saved through faith, but women, faith and child. We never add works to salvation. Not circumcision, not childbearing, nothing. That's not what he's teaching here. He's also not promising that, that every woman will be saved physically through childbearing. We also know godly women who have lost their lives physically through the bearing of children. And I know, man, we are bumping up against a sensitive topic there have been many trials and sufferings in the area of childbearing. And so we say this with the gravity that it deserves. Now, while it's hard to say for sure what's going on here, and there are many people with different, I mean, you go to almost any commentary, and there's different understandings of this. So I'm going to say this humbly, but I think this is where some cultural background can really help shed some light on who Paul's talking to and the point that he's trying to make. 
So at the time, um, in Ephesus, where Paul is preaching to, um, their, center, their center of worship, false god worship, was the temple of Artemis. And this is what it looks like today, some ruins in there in Artemis and Ephesus, modern-day Ephesus. Um, and, and this temple was the, if you go to Acts 19, there were the miracles that God is doing there, and they immediately ascribe it to Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they shout. This is their main deity. Now think about the passage we just read, and then here is some of the, the realities of this false god. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. Okay? And so here is Artemis. Um, this, was, this was, by and large, a female-led cult. So you have these female leaders out of this cult teaching these heresies. And one of the ways that they worshipped Artemis was through the adorning of hair. Fancy braids, jewelry, and expensive clothing. Kind of sheds a little bit more light on the passage that we just read, does it not? And then there was this, this myth that they, that they told about Artemis and her twin brother Apollo. This gets weird, but basically they were born, they were twins, uh, but it was Artemis, the woman who came first, and then the male, Apollo. And apparently the, the story is that Apollo was, uh, that Artemis actually saved Apollo in childbearing. She was the one that was able to deliver him safely. And because of that, Artemis was given the power over women in childbirth. It was Artemis, according to their understanding, who decided who lived and who died through childbearing. And she was cruel. She was not like the God of the Bible that we know. And so these women were afraid. They were afraid of even marrying, let alone having children, because they didn't want to lose their lives cruel, wicked will of Artemis. And so there are a lot of times that there was actually this heresy. Paul's going to address it in chapter 4 where they would actually forbid marriage. We're not even going to go down that road because we don't want to lose our lives. I believe Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus in a place that is very influenced by this cult. People in the church who have either changed out of these beliefs but are still holding on to some of these beliefs or have even brought those in and are, this might have been part of the false teaching that he's combating here in 1 Timothy. And what he wants to say here is Paul wants to reassure them, brothers and sisters, Artemis does not, cannot ultimately save you. She's not the one who decides who lives and who dies. Where does your faith lie? He says, if they continue in faith, where is your faith? Not in Artemis, but in the child born of a woman. He's the only one that can save you. You do not have to be afraid to marry or to have children. Doesn't say you all have to. We, we, we see clearly in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the advantages, actually promotes the idea of singleness. He's not saying a woman's worth comes in being married or having children. Our worth is found in Jesus alone. But he's saying, I've created roles, and you can walk into those trusting that even, listen, even if you do die physically, that the eternal state of your soul is saved and secure, not in Artemis, but because of Jesus Christ. And so we have faith in him. We continue in faith. We continue in love that we can give ourselves because we trust this one, that we can be wholly set apart from the world's ways, from Artemis' idea, from the false doctrines, and we, can have, a, we have self-control, which meant a sound mind, a sound mind that understands God's kingdom. And it doesn't matter what role you play. Your worth is not found in being a pastor or a leader or, or a follower or a husband or a wife, that your ultimate worth is found in Jesus Christ alone. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in? Here, these people were trusting in their safety and security and salvation and a false God. And he says, no, 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 
Your salvation does not come from them. Maybe for you it's not, it's not in that, but maybe it's your competency as a mother or a father or as an employee. Maybe you've put it in your, your 401k or your Roth IRA. We find all sorts of false saviors that cannot ultimately determine the destiny and security of our soul and our love by God. That is Jesus Christ and him alone. In the midst of our disruption and disorder, Jesus came to reorder what had come to chaos and shambles. Jesus is the perfect example of what we just talked about in this passage. He became the one that we could never be. Jesus was the one who, who never formed fists toward others, but always had open hands to give and to trust his God. That, that Jesus never drew attention away from his Father. Look at me. He always pointed people toward his Father. He perfectly submitted himself, placed himself under the leadership of his God, and led all the way to the cross, quiet, humbly, like a sheep being led to the slaughter. And now it's that same Jesus that lives inside of his followers that we can do and be exactly what he just called us to do and be. So let me ask you, what is the position of your heart this morning? Is it open-handed or is it closed-fisted? Is it submissive toward your God or is it rebellious? My way, my thing. This will determine what you believe about this truth. will determine how you talk, how you pray, how you lead, how you follow, and how you believe you are safe and secure and saved. So what does this look like in our lives? Quick, quick example, and then we'll be done. Dear friends of ours, Chris and Marsha Ball. He's a pastor up in Anchorage. Uh, our sister church, one in a church in our fellowship. And uh, a little while ago, Marsha was diagnosed with cancer. And so it was Chris taking care of Marsha. And then Chris has been through the ringer. If you've been following our prayer chain uh, emails, um, Chris has already gone through unspeakable suffering and, and, and pain this last couple years, and it was just less last week that he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and liver cancer. And Maggie sent out in a, the prayer chain email just a couple days ago this beautiful <laughs> the mindset of Chris and Marcia. Um, this was a quote from uh, Marcia. She said, Please pray that I will be strong. And make Chris feel like the most loved person this side of heaven. That's her heart toward her husband. And then, and then Chris said in response, at, at the same time, Chris longs to be stronger and more present so that he can be helpful to Marcia, who has had to take on so much so quickly. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're talking about. It doesn't matter. We have different roles. One's a husband, one's a wife, but they are loving one another, submitted to one another in, out of reverence for Christ and an affection toward each other. And whether it's in our home or in our churches, whatever role we play, we are each, we are each to give of ourselves, care about the other, love our neighbor, love those around us because we are safe and secure in who we are in Christ. We have everything we need in him, so we are free to open up those fists into hands that love and serve and put the other in front of ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are the God of truth. And even when the truth can be hard to sit on, whether it's just hard to understand exactly what you're saying, or it can be hard things that run against our culture, that run against our own understanding, we wrestle with those things humbly, 
be going straight to the text and arguing and, and, and discussing what do you say to us. And Father, I just pray that we would be a people, that there are those of us that, that need to open those fists up into hands that receive, hands that give, hands that trust you, that, that rights would be wrong this week, that conversations would be had, would settle those things that we can praise you, pray to you with open hands. Pray, Father, that we would be the kind of people that would, that would not draw attention to ourselves by our outfits, by our behavior, but we want to point people toward the one true God, the good God, the holy God, that people would make much of Jesus in him. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people that because we trust that you are God, that we would receive the roles, receive the places and lives that you've given us as each of us in different places, our followers and our leaders. And that we would trust the ultimate shepherd of our souls and find our worth and value in Jesus. Father, that we would believe that we're not saved by anybody else than him. And I know, Lord, we know that in our heads, but the way we live shows the false idols, the things that we put hope and stock into all the time. There is one in whom our soul lies secure, and his name is Jesus. And out of that, I pray that we would be people who would imitate you. We see the beautiful example in Chris and Marcia. Lord, we pray for healing for both of them. And we thank you for their example. Trophies of your grace, the way that we see Christ in each of them toward each other. May that be our heart for you and for the other. It's in Christ's beautiful name. The blessing and honor and all the praise is worthy to him. Amen.